earlier, turn to Mark chapter 8. Uh, we are continuing on in our study through Mark's gospel. Verses 22 through 33 will be our verses of focus this morning. I want us to think about the question, who is Jesus? It's a question that uh, I had the opportunity to read and to, and to listen to two uh, famous people answer just this week. Got to read the account of Benjamin Franklin, one of the founding fathers here in the United States, and here uh, through a letter that he wrote to one of his friends, the answer from his point of view to this question, you know, who is Jesus? I also got to watch a video interview of a rock and roll star named Bono, a lead singer from a group uh, called U2. And uh, both of these men gave different answers to that question. One man got it right. The other man had blurred vision. I'll leave it up to you to decide once you hear their responses. First of all, I'll read to you the letter from Benjamin Franklin, written to his friend Ezra Stiles. He says, Here is my creed. I believe in one God, creator of the universe, that he governs it by his providence, that he ought to be worshipped, that is the most acceptable service we can render to him, is doing good to his children, that the soul of man is immortal and will be treated with justice in another life, respecting its conduct in this. These I take to be fundamental principles of all sound religion, and I regard them as you do, in whatever sect I meet with them. As to Jesus of Nazareth, my opinion of whom you particularly desire, I think the system of morals and his religion as he left them to us, the best the world ever saw or is likely to see. Sounds well and good to this point. Then listen to this. But I apprehend it has received various corrupting changes. And I have with most of the present dissenters in England some doubts as to his divinity. Though it is a question I do not dogmatize upon, having never studied it, and think it needless to busy myself with it now, when I expect soon an opportunity of knowing the truth with less trouble. And sure enough, that opportunity for him to know came very soon. Within a month's time, Benjamin Franklin passed away April 17th. 1790. The other response, I want you to watch this really short video of this rock and roll singer giving his answer to the question, who is Jesus? Two men answer the question, who is Jesus? One man got it right. One man had a blurred vision. It maybe wasn't the answer's or the persons that you would have attributed those answers to. Nevertheless, I believe that is the point of our text before us here this morning in Mark chapter 8. Who is Jesus? It is my prayer that you gain a clearer understanding of the person and the work of Christ, and in so doing, that you would worship him as he deserves. If you're able to this morning, I want to invite you to stand with me in reverence for the reading of the word of God. Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 22. Mark writes these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And they came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. 
Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he said to him, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do you say that I am? They told him, saying, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to this point in the service where we open up the Bible, I pray, God, we would do so with the conviction this is the Word of God. Father, that you would speak to us. Speak to us clearly. Speak to us powerfully. Speak to us in such a way that we would be transformed into the image of your beloved Son. Father, we thank you for Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. Father, he is the one that we have assembled here to worship today. He is the one that we proclaim. He is the only hope for every individual within the sound of my voice. Holy Spirit, move in our hearts today. Have your way with us. Draw us closer to the Lord. Draw us through the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. <clears throat> As we are moving through Mark's gospel, we are coming here to the, the end of our focus as we've been looking through the first eight chapters. As we said last week, there's a lot of repetition between the end of chapter 6 and what we find in chapter 8. We've already seen that there were two separate miraculous feedings, which were followed by boat trips, which were followed by confrontations with the religious leaders, which was then followed by conversations over the subject of bread, which was followed by, as we see today, healing and confession. Now, anytime we see repetition in the Bible, we know that it's obvious that God is wanting to emphasize something. And so we need to focus on what is being repeated. Well, first of all, I want us to focus on His mercy's impact. Because once again, we see the loving compassion of Jesus on display. First of all, His touch is requested. It says they came to Bethsaida. They brought Him a blind man. And they implored Him to touch Him. Here was a man who was in need. Here was a man who had others 
that were constantly leading him around. Here was a man who had no other recourse but to trust in someone. They brought this man to Jesus and they said, Jesus, we have heard that you are able to do miracles. We have heard that you can do mighty things. And we implore and we beg you on this man's behalf, please touch him so that he might be changed. That's the way that we as believers need to be with those who do not know Jesus Christ. We need to be bringing them to Jesus and we need to be imploring to Jesus on their behalf. Lord, please touch them so that they might see. His touch is requested. His touch is received in verse 23. Taking the man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. We see in this that this man had to exercise some form of trust in Jesus. Have you ever had someone leading you by the hand when you could not see? From time to time, my daughter will clean her room and, 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 and wants to surprise me with this. And so she says, Daddy, I want to show you something, but you need to close your eyes. And, and, and here, take my hand, and I want you to follow me. And, uh, and, and, and I've got to confess, as she's leading me, I kind of keep one eye open because if I don't, you know, I'm going to have a lot more than just one broken finger to attest to. But it takes a degree of faith when you cannot see to take someone by the hand and allow them to lead you somewhere. This man was exercising a degree of faith. This man, Jesus, they say, can heal me. And I'm going to trust him. And I'm going to allow him to lead me somewhere. I don't know where he's taking me. I cannot see it. But I trust him. That's the same kind of faith you and I need to have. We don't always know where he's going to lead us next. But do you trust him? Jesus took this man away from the crowds, took him to a private place alone. And that means that this reaction or this, this interaction between Jesus and this man was a personal exchange. This wasn't meant for everyone else. It was between Jesus and this man. The work that Jesus wants to do in your life is a personal work. It's a matter between him and you. Will you allow him to lead you where he wants you to go? His touch was received in verse 23. But notice when Jesus laid his hands on him, it says he, he spit on his eyes, he, he applied spit, and so in this way he was communicating to this man that could not see, I'm, I'm applying this moistness to your eyes, and I'm going to be washing away the impurities that are hindering you from seeing clearly. I've got the ability to wash away what blinds you. It says he lays his hands on him and he asks him, do you see anything? The response in verse 24 is a little bizarre. The man looks up and he says, I see men for I see them like trees walking around. So what that means is that he can see a little bit and it tells us this man used to be able to see because he knew what trees looked like. 
He says, I see men, but they look like trees walking around. It's very fuzzy. Very blurry. So because of that, we see his touch is repeated. Verse 25, it says, Then he again laid his hands on his eyes. He looked intently as restored and began to see everything clearly. It was the second touch that gave him the clear vision. And so we ask ourselves, why is this? Was Jesus, you know, a little off that day? Maybe he didn't have his Wheaties that morning? What's going on, you know? Because every other instance, this is the only instance in the gospel stories where a healing was done gradually. Every other time it's instantaneous. Why? Why is it gradual? Why, why two stages? No, well, we look to the text itself. It doesn't tell us explicitly why. So the next step is to look at the context. Look at what's going on around this story. Could it be that Mark is tying this story in to something he has already said or something he is about to say. And notice what he had said in verse 17. Jesus asked the disciples, Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Verse 21, he says to them, Do you not yet understand? He had performed all these miracles around them and they somehow had not yet quite grasped who Jesus was and then here Jesus heals this man initially blurred vision second touch he is cleared reminds me of a story that Linda White told me she's not here today so I can tell this on her you know she's been having trouble with her eyes a lot of trouble and she went to the doctor here recently and she told the eye doctor, she says, you know, I sit on the front pew at the church and, and I can hardly see the pastor. He's blurry. And the eye doctor says, well, I'm going to give you these special glasses and it's going to be able to, to help you see better and, and, and he will look better to you. She said, but I don't know about making him sound any better or not, but at least he'll look better. And to her credit, you know what she said? She bragged on her pastor. She said, oh, he can't sound any better than he already does. She obviously didn't get to hear me talk like this today. I have sounded better. But uh, I appreciated her bragging on me. But blurred vision, this man had it, required a second touch. Yet we see his mercy's impact. Secondly, I want us to focus on the Messiah's identity. Because Mark chapter 1 through chapter 8 the entire story has been building to this point. This is the center, literally this is the middle of the 16 chapters of Mark's gospel. He has been showing stories where people have been interacting with Jesus and, and, and several of them have been making incorrect assumptions about who Jesus is. So Mark is leading us to this central point. And it begins, first of all, with his probing inquisition. Jesus asked the question of his disciples. He says, they went to the village of Caesarea Philippi. This was about 25 miles north of where Jesus and his disciples normally ministered. So he took them away so they could be alone. Or on this retreat setting, 
he asked them a question. Who do the people say that I am? You've been with me now for quite some time, about three years or so. You've been with me when I've healed. You've heard my teachings. I've sent you out on your own in pairs. Who do people say that I am? What have you heard? And they respond to him and say, well, some people say John the Baptist because you are proclaiming the way of the Lord. Some say that you are Elijah or one of the prophets. And, you know, really, on the surface, this looks like very flattering things to say because the Pharisees had accused him of being demon-possessed in chapter 3. And so these were really, they were complimentary remarks. You're a mighty man. You are a gifted teacher. You are a, a compassionate man. You care for others. You are, a, you are an example for us to follow when it comes to treating others. Those are all things that are well and good. The problem is those things are incomplete. There is more to Jesus than just being a prophet, a teacher, a healer, a good person, a role model. There is more to the Messiah. So in verse 29 we see his progressing illumination. As the disciples have been moving and walking with him and learning from him, their knowledge of who he is and his true identity is beginning to grow. And so Jesus said, okay, now you've told me what others say. Literally it reads, you. Who do you say that I am? It's an emphatic question. It's a very pointed question. As Bono said in the video, it, it is the pivotal question for, that which all of Christianity turns on. Who is Jesus? Who do you as an individual say he is? Not who does, who does the church say he is. Who does the world say he is. Who do you as an individual say Jesus of Nazareth is? To which Peter responds, perhaps as the spokesperson for the rest of the apostles. Peter says to him, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the chosen one of God. You are the one whom God has set apart for the task of leading and saving his people. You are the Christ. It's a significant statement because this is the first time since the very first verse of the entire book that the word Christ has been uttered. Remember verse 1, chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. The entire eight chapters has been building to that moment where someone would recognize and confess Jesus is the Christ. This progression, this illumination has finally come. The disciples 
finally see the truth. Jesus is the Messiah. Then in verse 30, we see his perplexing instruction. Because now we think, all right, they get it. They know Jesus is the Messiah. Everybody needs to hear this. In verse 30, he warned them not to tell anyone about him. And we say, what's up with that? I thought we're supposed to tell everyone Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. And he says, don't do it. Why is that? Well, as this story unfolds, it was not yet time to make that announcement. Although they knew the answer, it was not yet time. You know, just last weekend, I had uh, the privilege of attending Gary and Amy's baby reveal party where they got to determine or, or, or see what the gender of, of the child was going to be. And it was really cool the way they had it set up. Uh, they had these cannons, these confetti cannons. And whatever color it shot out, we would know whether it was going to be a boy or a girl. If it was blue confetti, it would be a boy. If it was pink, it would be a girl. And there were a, a select few individuals that knew going into this. And, and no matter how much people tried to bribe them and twist their arm and, 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 and coerce them into telling, they weren't going to spill the beans. They had to wait for the confetti cannon. And I was told that Garrison wasn't even aware of the confetti cannon because if he was, there's no telling what that young man would have done to try to figure out whether he was going to have a baby brother or a baby sister. The gender was known by some, but yet it was not time to declare if it was a boy or a girl. Had to wait for the final, the appropriate moment. The disciples knew Jesus was the Messiah, but it was not yet time to declare something else had to happen first. What was that? Leads us to our final point. Focus on his mission's importance. His mission's importance. Their understanding of the Messiah was incomplete. They knew Jesus was the Messiah. They knew he had come to liberate God's people, that he had come to be the shepherd and to be the king of God's people. They understood that. But just like a a diamond has many facets to it, they had not yet seen the full glory of the Messiah's mission. We see in verse 31 the revelation of the cross. It says, He began to teach them. And so he started at this moment a new teaching. Up to this point, they had not had this full disclosure. He began to teach them. At this point, verse 32 says, he was stating the matter plainly. So this was no veiled language. This was nothing that they had to try to read between the lines to try to understand. He began to teach them at that moment, the Son of Man, his title for himself, referencing the Old Testament, the glorious, powerful Messiah whom God would send to reign on the earth Jesus said about himself the son of man must 
suffer many things. So he's introducing to them this concept of the suffering Messiah, the suffering servant. They had an idea the Messiah would come in power and glory and authority. He was going to grab the Roman Empire by the throat, cast it under his feet, liberate the Jews, restore the glory of the kingdom of Israel. And Jesus said, the Messiah, the Son of Man, must suffer. This was a brand new teaching to them. He began to peel the curtain back and allow them to see exactly what his mission was to be. He said he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Not only would he suffer, he would be killed. Wait a minute. He was, he was to come and kill the enemy and you're telling me the enemy is going to kill him? That's not the role of the Messiah. But yet he says, and after three days, rise again. Aha! There, we see the victory. The tomb is empty. There, we see the triumph of the Lord. Yes, we see the cross and the sacrifice and the humility and the suffering, the pain and the anguish. But the rest of the story, the tomb is empty. He is risen. The Messiah must follow this pathway of suffering to reach glory. After three days. That's why we, that's why we celebrate today. That's why this room is packed today. Because after three days, he rose again. After three days, the tomb was empty. There was no corpse. His enemies could not present evidence and fact. Jesus is still dead. No one could explain it. Other than the fact 500 individuals at one time said, he's alive. He's alive. The revelation of the cross, the pathway of suffering to glory, victory and vindication would happen only after the cross. Jesus began to teach them and he was stating the matter plainly. Divine necessity. He must suffer, be rejected, crucified, ultimately resurrected. The revelation of the cross is followed by Peter's rejection of the cross. In verse 32, it says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That's very strong language. That's not saying, well, you know, Lord, I don't think I really agree with that. I don't, I don't believe you should have said that. I, I think you should have worded it another way. No, it was a very harsh, a very strong rebuke. Peter said, no, you're wrong. Son of man must not suffer. The son of man must not be killed. You're wrong. Jesus, stop it. It's enough. Peter was rebuking Jesus. Why? Because there was no room in Peter's theology for a suffering Messiah. Peter had this idea, this is who the Christ should be. This is what Jesus is supposed to do. In my opinion, in my estimation, 
And Jesus, if you don't fit my opinion, Jesus, you're wrong. A lot of people walking around with that mindset today. They've got this image and this picture and this opinion of who Jesus is. And, and, and interestingly enough, it really looks just like them. Jesus is just like me. And if Jesus isn't just like me, then he's not the right Jesus. If Jesus isn't the way I think Jesus should be, if Jesus doesn't say what I think Jesus should say, then maybe something's wrong, something's skewed. As, as, as Benjamin Franklin said, something is corrupted in the transmission. And if somehow we can put Jesus in a box and say, I've got him figured out. And anybody who tries to tell me otherwise, they're wrong. Peter rebukes Jesus because of the scandal of the cross. How can victory come through submission? Doesn't make any sense. I can't wrap my mind around it, therefore it can't be true. See how arrogant that is? And there's a lot of people that think that way about religion, about Christianity. If it doesn't make sense to me, then it's wrong. As if somehow we are the ultimate authority. As if somehow we have, have the, 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 the greatest mind in the world. And if, I, if it doesn't make sense to me, I ain't buying it. Well, you know what? I don't want a God that can make sense to my feeble mind. I want a God that just blows my mind away. I want a God that I cannot fathom. I want a God that I cannot understand at all. And that's the God of the Bible. Peter says, Lord, silence. It's enough. Rejection of the cross. It's not the world's way of defeating the enemy. If it's not the world's way, it's wrong. The rejection of the cross is followed by the reason for the cross. Jesus says to him in verse 33, turning around, seeing his disciples. So Jesus says, this is not just between you and me, Peter. These guys need to hear it as well. Peter, if you're the, if you're the spokesman for the disciples, and you're telling me, you're rebuking me about the cross, they need to hear this as well. Turns around, sees the disciples, says to Peter, in the presence of all of them, get behind me, Satan. And we're like, whoa. Wait a minute. Peter just said, you are the Christ. Peter just made the glorious confession. Peter just uttered the phrase that is the truest phrase of all times. Jesus is the Christ. And now Jesus is saying, Peter, you're Satan for saying what you're saying. You are offering me, you are challenging me to be the Messiah without the cross. You are trying to tell me to save without the sacrifice. You are offering me a pathway that you say leads to glory without suffering. That's no more than what Satan did when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. When he said, if you are the Son of God, Cast yourself off the temple and let God save you. Let the Father save you. If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. 
serve yourself. If you are the Son of God, bow down and worship me. I will give you the kingdoms of this world. He's offering him the shortcut. But Jesus says, it's rightfully mine in the first place. I will take it back the way I choose to take it back. Thank you. And I will take it back by dying for the sins of the world so that I can have my kingdom and I can have my people with me. The reason for the cross. He says to Peter, your mind is not on the things of God, but on the things of man. You don't understand, Peter. This is the divine necessity. You don't understand, Peter. I am the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. You don't understand, Peter, that that I am to be handed over by the predetermined will of the Father. What you are offering me is contrary to the will of God. If it's contrary to the will of God, it's evil. The Pharisees tested Jesus. Peter rebuked Jesus. Both of which had his origins in the devil. You see, the disciples the disciples understood Jesus was the Messiah. But what they didn't understand was the role of the Messiah involved the cross. You see, the disciples had been touched once. And they could see, but their vision was blurry. They needed a second touch to truly understand what the Messiah has come to do. You know, it's interesting in Mark's gospel, there is only two blind men that are healed. This fellow here, right before Peter's confession, and a man named Bartimaeus, right before the triumphal entry in the events of Passion Week. One blind man healed before the confession, you are the Christ, The other blind man healed before the crucifixion. You are the Christ. And the Roman centurion said, Truly, this man is the Son of God. The disciples saw Jesus, but his mission was blurry. Who is this man? They asked in chapter 4. Who is this man who calms the seas? The winds and the waves obey him. Now they are answering that question for themselves. He's the Christ. The next question they've got to ask themselves, why has he come? And in the story of Jesus healing Bartimaeus, we find chapter 10, verse 45, this statement, the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now I said, uh, my desire for you is that you would gain a clearer understanding of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You can understand the work of Jesus without understanding the person that he is the Son of God. You can understand the person of Jesus, that he is the Son of God, without understanding that he has gone to the cross to redeem you from your sins. You need to see Jesus clearly 
And when you do, it is my prayer that you will worship him as he truly deserves. The more you know about Jesus, the more reason you have to fall in love with Jesus and commit yourself to Jesus. And surrendering to Jesus and saying, Lord, help me to live a life that is pleasing to you. Now the example of Jesus comes into play. You can't follow Jesus until you surrender and receive Him. Do you have blurred vision about who Jesus is? So I ask you the question, who do you say that He is? Your answer to that, is it clear or is it blurry? And if it's blurry, I believe the Scriptures should be your corrective lenses. If your spiritual eyesight is off, let the Scriptures, let the Word of God clear that matter up for you. His Word is sufficient. His Word is enough. His Word is true. Let the Scriptures be your corrective lenses. His Word is sufficient to heal your vision. Just like that blind man. Allow him to take you by the hand. When you don't have the spiritual sight necessary, allow him to take you by the hand and lead you to a place where he can communicate with you privately. Where he can open your spiritual eyes so that you might answer that question properly. Who is... Jesus, He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves, throw ourselves upon Your mercy today. Father, we have all sinned and fall short of Your glory. None of us deserve forgiveness. None of us deserve glory. Father, your word tells us that you loved us so much you sent your only begotten Son that if we would just but believe in Him and trust in Him we'd have everlasting life. The Bible doesn't say we're going to have a life that's free from problems and difficulties. Oh no, the Bible says in this world we will have tribulations some of which we bring upon ourselves some of which is life and we can't do anything about it. But irregardless, there is hope. In the midst of suffering, there is hope because that tomb is empty. Because He lives. If Jesus was still dead, then we are likewise dead in our trespasses and sins. If the body of Jesus did not rise, we are wasting our time this morning. And your word even says so that we are most to be pitied. But Jesus has been raised. Jesus is alive. Jesus is transforming lives. He is saving souls. For 2,000 years, all over this world, even today, today is the day of salvation. For anyone who would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, anyone who would confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and would believe in their heart that God has raised Him from the dead. If anyone is willing to confess and believe that, 
Your promise is they will be saved. They will be transformed. They will become a new creation. Father, that's what we are longing for today. Lord, maybe there is a soul in our presence that's never been born again. A man, a woman, a boy, or a girl that has never trusted in the Messiah. Maybe they, maybe they acknowledge Jesus is the Savior. Maybe He is the Son of God. But maybe they have not appropriated His work to themselves by faith. Father, speak to our hearts. Open our eyes that we might understand focus on the one who has all authority laying it down so he might save a sinner like me. Heavenly Father, move, I pray, during this time of invitation as decisions need to be made. What a glorious day to make those decisions. We pray this in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.